0: This is Dr. Baliga here. Today's podcast is on hypokalemia. This podcast is derived from an outstanding chapter titled Electrolyte Disorders from the Nephrology section of Baliga's textbook of internal medicine available at www.mastermedfacts.com. The authors of the chapter are Dr. John J. Chang, MD and Dr. Aldo J. Paxeto MD. Dr. Chang is assistant professor of medicine at Yale University School of Medicine, and he is a trained nephrologist and works as an academic hospitalist at Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Aldo J. Paxeto is Professor of Medicine and Nephrology at Yale University School of Medicine. He also serves as the Associate Chair for Ambulatory Operations and Quality and the Clinical Chief of Nephrology and the Director of the Hypertension Center at the Yale New Haven Hospital. Another important source for the podcast is a review article published in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Hypokalemia, authored by Dr. F. John Genari, M.D. The reference is New England Journal of Medicine, 1998, pages 451 to 458 in the volume 339. The extracellular potassium concentration is tightly maintained between 3.5 to 5 milliequivalents per liter because normal potassium levels are essential for generation of normal action potentials in cardiac and skeletal muscles and neurons. A low serum potassium concentration is perhaps the most common electrolyte abnormality encountered in day-to-day clinical practice. When defined as a value of less than 3.6 millimoles of potassium per liter, hypokalemia is found in over one in five of hospitalized patients. The majority of these patients have serum potassium concentrations between 3 and 3.5 millimoles per liter, but as many as one quarter have values below 3 millimoles per liter. Comparable data are not available in the outpatient setting, but a low serum potassium concentration is found in 10 to 40% of the patients treated with thiazide diuretics. In my opinion, this number may be even higher on those on loop diuretics. Hypokalemia is generally well tolerated in otherwise healthy individuals, but can be life threatening when severe. Even mild or moderate hypokalemia increases the risk of morbidity and mortality in patients with heart disease. As a result, when hypokalemia is identified, the underlying etiology should be sought and the disorder treated. Cellular buffering of potassium provides the first immediate defense against a major fluctuation in extracellular potassium concentration. The cell contains 98% of the total body potassium that is about 3,000 to 4,000 milliequivalents and can sequester extracellular potassium in hyperkalemia or release intracellular potassium in hypokalemia. The kidneys provide a long-term potassium homeostasis by adjusting the urinary potassium excretion according to potassium intake and the body's potassium status. The urinary potassium excretion which rises in response to an increased potassium intake and hyperkalemia is so efficient that even a tenfold increase in the daily potassium intake from 40 to 400 milliequivalents does not produce persistent hyperkalemia. A corollary to this is that persistent hyperkalemia always indicates a defect in urinary potassium excretion. In contrast, in response to a decreased potassium intake and hypokalemia, the urinary potassium excretion can fall to as low as 15 to 25 milliequivalents a day. Therefore, a diminished potassium intake alone, unless quite severe, does not cause chronic hypokalemia. Except for the causes of non-renal potassium loss from the gastrointestinal tract or skin, persistent hypokalemia stems from an excessive urinary potassium excretion. A disturbance in the transcellular shift of potassium can cause hypokalemia and hyperkalemia which is almost always transient if the renal potassium handling is intact. Besides the extracellular potassium concentration itself, the sodium potassium ATPase pump is a major regulator of transcellular potassium shift. Stimulation of this pump by insulin and catecholamines causes hypokalemia by enhancing cellular potassium uptake while inhibition of the pump by digoxin and beta-2 adrenergic receptor blocker causes hyperkalemia by impairing cellular potassium uptake. Additionally, hyperosmolarity and a change in the extracellular pH influence the transcellular potassium shift leading to a disturbance in the extracellular potassium concentration. The renal handling of potassium occurs in three stages in the distinct anatomic sites along the nephron. The first stage is the filtration of the plasma potassium at the glomerulus. The second stage involves net reabsorption of greater than 90% of the filtered potassium in the proximal tubule, where 60 to 80% is reabsorbed and the loop of Henle where about 25% is reabsorbed. As a result, the fluid leaving the loop of Henle achieves a low luminal potassium concentration. The third and last stage of renal potassium handling takes place in the distal nephron that is the connecting segment and the collecting duct where net potassium reabsorption or net potassium secretion can occur depending on the potassium intake and the body's potassium status. On a typical day of 100 milliequivalents of potassium, the distal nephron achieves net potassium secretion, which is responsible for the majority of the potassium appearing in the urine. A four-fold increase in the daily potassium intake to 400 milliequivalents induces a similar increase in the distal potassium secretion. In contrast, on a restricted potassium diet or in hypokalemia, the distal nephron achieves net potassium reabsorption and minimizes urinary potassium loss to as low as 15 to 25 milliequivalents a day. Thus, the distal nephron is the site of regulation for the urinary potassium excretion. The potassium secretion in the distal nephron requires a sufficient potassium permeability across the principal cell and B, the adequate driving force for potassium secretion. The sodium potassium ATPase on the basolateral membrane takes up potassium from the extracellular fluid, which the open potassium channel on the luminal membrane secretes into the collecting duct lumen. Thus, the normal activity of the sodium potassium ATPase and the adequate number of open potassium channels are necessary to establish sufficient potassium permeability across the principal cell. By stimulating the sodium potassium ATPase and increasing the number of open potassium channels, aldosterone enhances potassium permeability and induces unary potassium excretion. The driving force for potassium secretion stems from the low luminal potassium concentration and the lumen negativity. The fluid entering the distal nephron is low in potassium because of potassium reabsorption in the proximal tubule and the loop of Henle. An adequate distal tubular flow then maintains the low potassium concentration by washing away the secreted potassium and preventing its buildup. The adequate distal tubular flow also helps generate and maintain the lumen negativity by providing an adequate supply of intraluminal potassium. The entry of potassium into the principal cell via the amyloid-sensitive epithelial sodium channels with a slight delay in the reabsorption of an anion such as chloride makes the lumen negative relative to the cell. By increasing the number of open sodium channels aldosterone stimulates Sodium reabsorption and contributes to the generation of lumen negativity. Finally, the reabsorbed sodium exits the cell across the basolateral membrane by the sodium potassium ATPase in exchange for extracellular potassium. The foregoing discussion highlights the central role that aldosterone and adequate distal tubular sodium delivery and urine flow play in renal potassium excretion. Activation of the basolateral sodium, potassium ATPase, and the luminal potassium channels by aldosterone establishes potassium permeability across the principal cell, while aldosterone mediates sodium reabsorption by the principal cell in the setting of adequate sodium delivery and urine flow generates and maintains the favorable electrochemical gradient for potassium secretion. As you will see, most of the causes of excessive or reduced urinary potassium excretion can be traced back to a high or low aldosterone level or distal tubular flow or both. Hyperaldosteronism and high distal tubular flow cause hypokalemia and hypoaldosteronism and low distal tubular flow cause hyperkalemia. Causes of hypokalemia, spurious hypokalemia can occur in whole body specimens kept at warm temperatures as the cells in the tube remain viable and can take up potassium. Pseudohypokalemia can occur in acute myelogenous leukemia. As far as true hypokalemia there are three general mechanisms by which it may develop. One is low dietary intake. The second is cellular sequestration of potassium or cellular shift and the third is increased loss of potassium. Low dietary intake a restricted potassium intake alone unless very severe rarely causes hypokalemia because the kidneys can appropriately reduce the potassium excretion to mirror dietary potassium restriction. Restricted potassium intake however can unmask or worsen hypokalemia from other causes. Influx of potassium into the cells is another important cause. The effects of beta two receptors and insulin on the sodium potassium ATPase are significant and can result in hypokalemia. Hypokalemic periodic paralysis is a neuromuscular disorder characterized by sudden recurrent attacks of painless generalized muscle weakness induced by severe hypokalemia. Hypokalemia is a result of excessive cellular sequestration of extracellular potassium. The mutations in the skeletal muscle L-type calcium channel or sodium channel are responsible for the hereditary forms of hypokalemic periodic paralysis. An acquired form of hypokalemic periodic paralysis is seen in hyperthyroidism most commonly in Asian and Hispanic males. Increased GI or sweat loss is an important cause. The loss of excessive gastric juice in vomiting or nasogastric drainage produces hypokalemia. The degree of hypokalemia, however, cannot be entirely explained by the potassium loss in the gastric juice. because the potassium concentration in the gastric juice is only 5 to 10 milliequivalents per liter. The potassium loss is limited even with the voluminous vomitus. The hypokalemia and vomiting is chiefly mediated by an increased urinary potassium loss. Normally only 5 to 10 milliequivalents of potassium is excreted daily in the stool. The potassium loss in the stool However, can increase in a variety of diarrheal illnesses including cholera, bilis adenoma, VIPoma and chronic laxative abuse. Unlike in vomiting, hypokalemia in diarrheal illnesses is the direct consequence of the potassium loss in the stool because the potassium concentration in the stool can be high, as high as 30 to 50 milliequivalents per liter. The mechanisms of increased Renal potassium loss include a hyperaldosteronism, B pseudo hyperaldosteronism, or hypermineralocorticoid activity without hyperaldosteronism, C. Increased distal tubular flow and distal sodium delivery, D. Non-reabsorbable anions in the distal fluid. In primary hyperaldosteronism, most commonly due to bilateral adrenal hyperplasia or adrenal adenomas. Aldosterone secretion becomes autonomous in the absence of normal physiologic stimuli, which are volume depletion and hyperkalemia. In secondary hypoaldosteronism, high aldosterone secretion is in response to high renin secretion as can be induced by volume depletion, heart failure, cirrhosis, renal stenosis, or renin-producing tumors. To actualize an increase in the potassium secretion in the distal nephron, hyperaldosteronism requires an adequate distal tubular flow and sodium delivery. Low distal sodium delivery and sluggish flow prevent generation of sufficient lumen negativity necessary for secretion of potassium and also hydrogen ion. Hence, without diuretic therapy, secondary hyperaldosteronism in CHF and cirrhosis does not produce hypokalemia and metabolic alkalosis. Mild volume expansion in primary hyperaldosteronism creates a brisk distal flow at baseline. Thus, metabolic alkalosis and hypokalemia occur spontaneously without diuretic therapy. Hypokalemia is also seen in pseudo-hyperaldosteronism, where there is hypermineralocorticoid activity Without hyperaldosteronism, aldosterone is not the only physiologic steroid with mineralocorticoid activity. Cortisol can bind to a mineralocorticoid receptor with the same avidity as aldosterone and can elicit the same downstream effects of aldosterone. Normally, though, cortisol does not exert mineralocorticoid activity because 11 beta hydroxy steroid dehydrogenase, an enzyme in the principal cell, degrades cortisol to cortisone, which does not bind to the mineralocorticoid receptor. In Cushing's syndrome or hypercortisolism, a high load of cortisol exceeds the enzyme's capacity to degrade cortisol, and consequently, a significant fraction of the intracellular cortisol remains unaltered and is available to bind to the mineralocorticoid receptor. In addition, to cortisol, other steroids with mineralocorticoid activity such as deoxycorticosterone and corticosterone are produced in Cushing syndrome. Because the highest concentration of cortisol is seen with an ectopic ACTH secretion, hypokalemia is most commonly observed in that condition. Congenital adrenal hypoplasia is a group of several genetic disorders in which a defect in one of the enzymes in the biosynthetic pathway of adrenal steroids leads to a deficiency in cortisol synthesis. Depending on the location of the block in the biosynthetic pathway, there may be an associated increase or decrease in the production of mineralocorticoids and androgens. the 11-beta-hydroxylase deficiency, and the 17 alpha hydroxylase deficiency, an increased production of deoxycorticosterone is principally responsible for high mineralocorticoid activity. Licorice contains a steroid with modest mineralocorticoid activity. More importantly, this compound also inhibits the 11 beta hydroxy steroid dehydrogenase. Syndrome of apparent mineralocorticoid excess is an autosomal dominant condition in which a mutation in the 11-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase gene inactivates this enzyme. In both licorice ingestion and syndrome of apparent mineralocorticoid excess, intracellular cortisol remains unaltered and is allowed to exert mineralocorticoid activity. In little syndrome, there is a gate of function of mutation in the epithelial sodium channels. Increased sodium reabsorption by hyperfunctioning epithelial sodium channel replicates the downstream effects seen in high aldosterone states. The conditions discussed are examples of pseudo-hyperaldosteronism in which there is clinical evidence of high mineralocorticoid activity in the form of hypokalemia and hypertension despite a low aldosterone level. The high mineralocorticoid activity in pseudo-hypoaldosteronism results from direct elicitation of the downstream effects of aldosteronism, that is sodium retention and kaliuresis, without aldosterone. The resulting volume expansion suppresses the secretion of renin and aldosterone. Increased distal tubular flow and distal sodium delivery in the kidneys is another important mechanism of hypokalemia. Loop and thiazide diuretics prevent sodium reabsorption in the thick ascending loop and distal convoluted tubules, respectively. Increased sodium delivery to the distal nephron can lead to increased urinary potassium loss and hypokalemia. Barter syndrome is a group of autosomal recessive disorders characterized by a defect. In sodium and chloride reabsorption in the thick ascending limb. In Gittleman syndrome, a defect in the sodium and chloride reabsorption resides in the distal convoluted tubule. Thus, the patients with Barter and Gittleman syndrome may be regarded as taking lifelong loop and thiazide diuretics, respectively. Non reabsorbable an- anions in the distal fluid is another important cause of hypokalemia due to renal loss when tubular fluid contains a high concentration of anions that are, that are not reabsorbed by the distal nephron the sodium reabsorption by the principal cell must proceed without reabsorption of accompanying anion as a result the lumen negativity is augmented in diabetic ketoacidosis a high tubular concentration of beta-hydroxybutyurates is responsible for enhancing the lumen negativity. In vomiting and type 2 renal tubular acidosis, a high luminal bicarbonate concentration heightens the lumen negativity. The hydrogen-potassium ATPase on the luminal membrane of type A intercalated cells secretes hydrogen and reabsorbs potassium ion. The effect of the secreted hydrogen ion is to partially neutralize the lumen negativity generated by the reabsorption of sodium by the neighboring principal cells. In type one renal tubular acidosis, a reduced hydrogen ion secretion from a defect in the hydrogen potassium ATPase serves to preserve the lumen negativity and promotes potassium secretion. Furthermore, the urinary potassium loss is exacerbated by reduced potassium reabsorption by the defective hydrogen-potassium ATPase. Other miscellaneous causes of renal tubular potassium loss and hypokalemia include hypomagnesemia. Hypomagnesemia enhances unary potassium wasting by promoting potassium secretion in the loop of Henle and cortical collecting duct. Measuring plasma magnesium level should be routine, part of evaluation for hypokalemia. Hypomagnesemia should be aggressively corrected to prevent continued urinary potassium loss. Amphotericin induces an increase in the luminal permeability to potassium in the distal nephron. Thus, ensuring increase in the efflux of intracellular potassium into the tubular lumen results in urinary potassium wasting. The renal potassium conservation is not 100% efficient since urinary potassium concentration can only be lowered to roughly 15 to 25 milliequilms per liter. Therefore, substantial urinary potassium loss can occur in the setting of severe polyuria. Patients with hypokalemia often have no symptoms, particularly when the disorder is mild, that is when serum potassium is between 3 to 3.5 millimoles per liter. With more severe hypokalemia, non-specific symptoms such as generalized weakness, lassitude, and constipation are more common. When serum potassium decreases to less than 2.5 millimoles per liter, muscle necrosis can occur and at serum concentrations of less than 2 millimoles per liter, an ascending paralysis can develop with an eventual impairment of lung function. The likelihood of symptoms appears to correlate with the rapidity of the decrease in serum potassium. In patients without underlying heart disease, abnormalities in the cardiac conduction are extremely unusual, even when serum potassium concentration is below 3 millimoles per liter. However, in patients with cardiac ischemia, heart failure, left ventricular hypotrophy, and even mild to moderate hypokalemia increases the likelihood of cardiac arrhythmias. Hypokalemia increases the arrhythmogenic potential of digoxin. The characteristic EKG changes seen in hypokalemia include ST segment depression, reduced T-wave amplitude and increased U-wave amplitude. More severe hypokalemia induces an increase in P-wave amplitude and widening of the QRS complex. A variety of atrial and ventricular arrhythmias including ventricular tachycardia, and ventricular fibrillation have been associated with hypokalemia. Potassium depletion and hypokalemia increase both systolic and diastolic blood pressure when sodium intake is not restricted presumably by promoting renal sodium retention. Hypokalemia is rarely suspected on the basis of clinical presentation. The diagnosis is made by measurement of serum potassium Although serum potassium concentration indicates disruption of normal homeostasis, with one very rare exception. In some patients with leukemia and markedly elevated white cell counts, potassium is taken by the abnormal cells if the blood is left at room temperature for several hours. This is known as pseudo hypokalemia. Thus, the first step in the management of hypokalemia is to review the patient's record. The cause of hypokalemia can usually be discovered from the history and review of routine labs. The following should be sought during history taking such as bouts of muscle weakness, vomiting, diarrhea, renal potassium wasting drugs such as carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, loop diuretics, thiazide diuretics and amphotericin, hyperglycemia, polyuria and hypertension. laboratory evaluation should include measurement of plasma magnesium. When the cause of hypokalemia is not immediately apparent, a systematic approach must be employed. The first step in this analysis is to differentiate renal potassium loss from non-renal potassium loss and cellular shifts. When a non-renal potassium loss or excessive cellular sequestration of potassium is behind hypokalemia, the kidney appropriately minimizes the urinary potassium excretion and the urine potassium concentration is generally less than 15 mEq per litre. On the other hand, when the urinary potassium wasting is responsible for hypokalemia, the urinary potassium excretion is expected to be high with the urine potassium concentration generally greater than 40 mEq per litre. The urine potassium concentration, however, may not consistently distinguish the renal from non-renal causes of hypokalemia because urinary potassium concentration is influenced not only by the degree of potassium excretion but also by the degree of water reabsorption. To correct for the effect of water reabsorption, the urinary potassium concentration can be normalized either by urinary creatinine concentration or in the urinary potassium to creatinine ratio or by the ratio of urinal osmolality to serum osmolality, as in the transtubular potassium gradient. For instance, with the renal potassium loss, the unary potassium to creatinine ratio and the transtubular potassium gradient are greater than 13 and two respectively. With non-renal potassium loss and cellular sequestration of potassium, the unary potassium to creatinine ratio and the transtubular potassium gradient are less than 13 and 2 respectively. If the renal potassium loss is the cause of hypokalemia, the next step is to determine acid-base status. Only a handful cases of hypokalemia are associated with metabolic acidosis and include type 1 renal tubular acidosis, type 2 renal tubular acidosis, diabetic ketoacidosis, and ingestion of toluene the presence of metabolic alkalosis, measurement of serum aldosterone will help differentiate pseudo hyperaldosteronism from hyperaldosteronism. The measurement of plasma renin activity helps to distinguish between primary from secondary hyperaldosteronism. Several precautions are necessary at the time of blood sampling to ensure that plasma potassium concentration is measured accurately. Plasma measurements of potassium yield slightly lower and less variable values than serum measurements of potassium. Hemolysis must be avoided in order to prevent a spurious elevation of plasma or serum potassium concentration. Most importantly, fist clenching must, must not be used to aid venipuncture because it can markedly elevate plasma potassium concentration. Orthostasis also raises plasma potassium concentration. Blood samples for the measurement of potassium are often obtained in the morning but the daily dose of diuretic is likely to be taken after measurement of blood sample. Thus hypokalemia that develops late in the day may be overlooked. Therapy of hypokalemia. The immediate goal in the therapy of profound and symptomatic hypokalemia is to raise potassium concentration to 3 milliequivalents per liter the concentration above which severe symptoms of weakness and arrhythmias are unusual it is not only unnecessary but even dangerous to try to correct the entire potassium deficit quickly as there is a real risk of inducing hyperkalemia when a large quantity of potassium is administered in a short period of time it is estimated that one milliequivalent per liter drop in the plasma potassium concentration from four milliequivalents per liter represents a total body potassium deficit of 200 to 400 milliequivalents. Oral and intravenous routes are equally effective in replacing potassium. Most clinicians choose intravenous route in severe hypokalemia, that is when potassium levels are less than 2.5 milliequivalents per liter, to ensure that the prescribed repletion is taking place promptly without a possible concern related to delayed or poor absorption. Potassium is usually replaced as potassium chloride. Intravenous repletion is limited by low maximum concentration that is 20 mEq per litre in peripheral veins and 40 mEq per litre in central veins to avoid venous injury and at a low rate that is less than 20 mq. per hour in most patients to avoid over correction. When potassium is being replenished intravenously, it is important to avoid a dextrose containing solution. The dextrose induces endogenous insulin secretion in a non-diabetic patient. The resultant cellular sequestration of extracellular potassium can transiently worsen hypokalemia and precipitate life-threatening arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia and ventricular fibrillation. In the absence of an independent factor causing transcellular potassium shifts, the magnitude of the deficit in body stores of potassium correlates with the degree of hypokalemia. On average, serum potassium decreases by 0.3 millimoles per liter for each 100 millimole reduction in total body stores, but the response is extremely variable. Because potassium repletion is rarely an urgent undertaking, one should always err on the low end of this estimate to avoid inducing hyperkalemia. A portion of administered potassium is always excreted even in the presence of serious potassium depletion. Thus, supplemental potassium is best administered in a moderate dose by mouth over periods of days to weeks to correct losses fully. 3 potassium salts are available for repletion of body potassium stores. These include potassium chloride, potassium phosphate and potassium bicarbonate or an organic anion that is a metabolic precursor of bicarbonate. Potassium phosphate is used to replace phosphate losses and potassium combined with bicarbonate or an organic anion is only recommended when potassium depletion occurs in the setting of metabolic acidosis. In all other settings, potassium chloride should be used because of its unique effectiveness in the most common causes of potassium depletion. Potassium chloride can be given in either liquid or tablet form. Several liquid preparations are available. and There are two types of slow-release tablets, a wax matrix formulation and a micro formulation. Potassium is readily absorbed regardless of the preparation used. The liquid forms are less expensive but have an unpleasant taste and are often not well tolerated. The slow-release tablets are well tolerated but have been associated with ulceration and bleeding of the gastrointestinal tract. The risk of such a complication, however, is quite low and seems to be lowest with the micro preparation. Although the calculation of the amount of potassium needed to replace the loss that has occurred before the onset of therapy is straightforward, there is no simple formula for calculating the amount needed in patients in whom potassium loss is ongoing. Typically, 40 to 100 millimoles of supplemental potassium chloride is needed each day to maintain serum potassium concentrations near or within the normal range in patients receiving diuretics and hypokalemia persists despite aggressive potassium replacement in approximately 10 percent of such patients. A more effective way to restore serum potassium to normal concentration is to use a second potassium-sparing drug such as amylorite, trimetrine or spironolactone. Although effective, these drugs can cause hyperkalemia occasionally to a life threatening degree, even when given in conjunction with a thiazide or loop diuretic. The risk is greatest in patients with diabetes or underlying kidney in- dysfunction. Patients treated with one of these potassium sparing diuretics should have the renal function and serum potassium concentrations monitored at frequent intervals. The safest approach to minimize hypokalemia. Is to ensure adequate intake of dietary potassium. Foods with high potassium content include dried figs, molasses, seaweed which have the highest content which is more than 1000 milligrams or 25 millimoles per 100 grams. Dried fruits such as dates, prunes, nuts, avocados, bran cereals, wheat germ and lima beans have very high content that is greater than 500 milligrams or 12.5 millimoles per 100 grams. Vegetables such as spinach, tomatoes, broccoli, winter squash, beets, carrots, cauliflower, potatoes have high content which is greater than 250 milligrams or 6.2 millimoles per 100 gram. Fruits such as bananas, cantaloupe, kiwis, oranges, mangoes also have high content of potassium which is greater than 250 milligrams or 6.2 millimoles per 100 gram. Meats such as ground beef, steak, pork, veal, lamb also have high content which is greater than 250 milligrams or 6.2 millimoles per 100 grams. The potassium contained in these foods is almost entirely coupled with phosphate rather than with chloride and therefore is not effective in repairing potassium loss associated with chloride depletion from diuretics, vomiting, or nasogastric drainage unless chloride intake is adequate. The salt substitutes sold in supermarkets contain approximately 12 millimoles of potassium per gram as the chloride salt. Although they are effective in correcting potassium losses, hyperkalemia is a real threat if excessive amounts are ingested. The best approach is to combine a diet high in potassium with either a prescribed dose of potassium chloride or a potassium sparing diuretic agent when necessary.